Welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. I hope that you out there, listeners, enjoy these half as much as I enjoy talking about these works of literature. And that's true for me, even when, as today, the subject matter is dark and tragic, because we are approaching the most famous single book of Virgil's Aeneid, book four, the tragic love story of Dido and Aeneas, right up there with the famous tragic love stories of Western literature, including, yes, Romeo and Juliet, but also Tristan and Isolde, and in the Arthurian tradition, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere. And it starts with a woman falling in love through listening to stories. I have always suspected, given the enormous influence in play after play of Virgil on Shakespeare, that Othello was probably influenced by this section of the Aeneid. Desdemona sits listening to Othello tell the stories of his wartime experiences and his hard upbringing to her father and falls in love with a man through listening to his stories. A dangerous thing for a woman to do. And that is true on the part of Dido here in the opening of book four, listening to Aeneas tell for two books of the epic, books two and three, tell the stories of what has happened to him in the last seven years. Book two entirely taken up with the vivid dramatization of the fall of Troy. Book three, a compressed version of the wanderings of Aeneas with his people seven years after that, until blown in here in Carthage by the storm caused by Aeneas's enemy, the goddess Juno. Sitting and listening in the hall in Carthage, and it only takes till line 10 of Robert Fitzgerald's translation of book four for the queen to be described as far gone and ill. And that began practically the minute that Aeneas landed. The Freudians have a term overdetermined when something has more than one psychological cause at the same time, they speak of it as overdetermined. And Dido falling in love with Aeneas has been overdetermined about four times over before book four even begins. First of all, Venus, in order to make sure of the welfare of her son Aeneas has caused her son Amor, known in Greek as Eros, in popular language as Cupid, 
has caused Amor, taking the disguise of Ascanius, the son of Aeneas, to sit in Dido's lap and cause her to fall in love with Aeneas, clear back in book one. Epic machinery, really rather clumsy stage machinery, so to speak, for something that is really psychological because Dido is predisposed anyway, psychologically, to fall in love. She is a lonely woman who has lost her husband, killed by her evil brother, Pygmalion, and is yearning, despite the fact that she has sworn never to marry again. And that is one of the over-determining causes of her tragedy of love. Like many people who lose a love relationship, she has gone through the, oh, never again, I just wasn't meant to be, I'm no good at relationships, I'm just going to live alone. And now she's gotten over it. Everybody's friends listen when you say that and sort of nod and know that you're likely to change your mind later, and she has. The problem is that what most people do not do is swear a solemn vow to the gods never to remarry. And that acts as a curse on her. It would have ended tragically anyway, but there is that curse which she mentions on the second page of book four. Oh, chaste life, before I break your laws, I pray that earth may open and gape for me. And what she's referring to is that vow with a horrible irony that earth will gape for her at the end of book four. The underworld will gape to gather her up after she commits suicide in madness and despair after the breakup of the relationship. So she has a lonely, broken heart and is yearning, and in blows this guy suddenly, who is a famous war hero, and is heroic and no doubt handsome and what's not to like and so on. So just for plain old human reasons, she is vulnerable to falling in love. Then in the opening of book four, she has a sister, Anna, who convinces her that you should do this because you also have, as a queen, political reasons for taking up with this man and forming an alliance with him. You need allies. You have fled from your native Phoenicia down here to Carthage in North Africa, and your city is not even yet fully built. Your evil brother who killed your husband may be following, bent on evil things at any moment, and you are in the midst of hostile desert tribes. This is North Africa, this is the Sahara, and there are desert chieftains out there playing the role of the suitors in the Odyssey with that intricate and unparalleled series of symmetries between the Aeneid on the one hand, and the Iliad and the Odyssey, sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both at once, 
Unlike anything else I know in the epic tradition, this mirroring and yet transformation that goes on in pattern after pattern, desert chieftains vying for her hand, and the chief one is named Iarbus, and she has rejected him. Uh, Anna says, Iarbus, you have rejected, and the other chieftains bred by the land of Africa, all of them are on the verge of being angry at you, and you should ally yourself with this famous war hero. It makes good political sense. Anna probably lives to bitterly regret the advice that she has given to her sister by the end of this book. Then, yet more overdetermination, two goddesses have puppeteered poor Dido and Aeneas into this love affair. And this is also described in the opening of book four of all the allies, Juno and Venus, absolute opposites who normally would be working very much at cross purposes, but here decide to work together. Venus's motive is easily understandable. She's Venus. She is the goddess of erotic love, and this is what Venus does and has already been doing up to this point via her son Amor. And nothing is too good for my boy because Aeneas is her son. Juno takes a little more explaining, but Juno is playing political chess. Juno is figuring maybe if I can get this guy born of Trojan blood married off and shacked up with Dido, maybe that will forestall the prophecy that we are told of in the opening pages of the Aeneid that people born of Trojan blood will destroy her favorite city of Carthage, which is a reference to the future Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, in which Rome eventually, though it took close to two centuries, Rome eventually was victorious and wiped out Carthage and its civilization. Maybe I can forestall that if I derail the destiny of Aeneas by marrying him off to Dido, who would otherwise be an enemy. So for reason after reason, Dido falls in love. And the image, the famous image in the Aeneid, not just in book four, but this image travels elsewhere to one poignant place in the second half in particular that we'll arrive at. But the image of a wounded doe is attached to poor Dido. And this is before anything even happens. This is before Dido and Aeneas declare themselves and become lovers. It says, the inward fire eats the soft marrow away and the internal wound bleeds on in silence. Unlucky Dido, burning in her madness, roamed through all the city like a doe hit by an arrow shot from far away 
by a shepherd hunting in the Cretan woods. That image of the wounded doe. A fine instance of what the scholars referred to as the Virgilian melancholy, the atmosphere of elegiac sorrow that hangs over the whole of the epic. And again, before the love affair even properly begins, the result with Dido is that she begins neglecting her public responsibilities as a queen. And we get the vivid image of Carthage basically coming to a halt because of lack of leadership. We are told, not in so many words, but we can see in the imagery that Dido is one of those people who, when they fall romantically in love, simply neglect everything else. They are so self-involved that they don't realize that, you know, you may be in love, but you still got to get up and go to work in the morning. You still have things to do. And when you are the queen, that has disastrous consequences for your entire city. Towers half-built rose no farther. Men no longer trained in arms or toiled to make harbors and battlements impregnable. Projects were broken off, laid over, and the menacing huge walls with cranes unmoving stood against the sky. Virgil doesn't lecture to us about Dido's moral failings, at least not at this point, but we see it. She has responsibilities, and of course, the contrast with Mr. Duty-bound, Mr. Pius Aeneas, duty-bound Aeneas, is absolutely conscious and intentional. And in fact, the play of opposite personalities is absolutely intentional. Of all the people to fall in love with each other, because we see Dido in her impulsive, passionate, intense, spontaneous, but not very controlled, lacking impulse control, her therapist would say. Nature in all of its glory, increasingly loosed and out of control. Falling in love with Mr. Repressed, Mr. Self-sacrifice of all my desires and impulses, in favor of my duty, my present duty to my people, yes, but the future duty of the triumph of the establishment of Rome and later the Roman Empire. Total opposites, and the tragedy arises from that alone. Dido and Aeneas are puppeteered into this by the two goddesses through a certain incident contrived out in the wilderness. There is a hunting expedition. Everybody goes out and leaves Carthage, and the goddesses contrive a storm, a big thunderstorm, but they contrive it just as, very convenient, there happens to be a nice, warm, beckoning cave for Dido and Aeneas to take refuge in, separated from the rest of the party, uh, 
They duck into this cave and are waiting for the storm to abate. And, oh, it's very romantic with the rain coming down and the lightning is beautiful and so forth. And, of course, they fall into each other's arms and become lovers. And I've learned from teaching this episode over the years that I need to point to a necessity to read the text absolutely carefully and exactly because it's easy to be misled by what the imagery is actually saying. The imagery is of the lightning of the storm as the torches that would be carried in a Roman wedding. Torches of lightning blazed, high heaven became witness to the marriage, but that's figurative. Even though it sounds as if it's literal, it's not a marriage. To put it bluntly, it's sex in a cave. But poor Dido makes the mistake that many another woman has made down through history up to, I'm sure now, the chilling lines. She thought no longer of a secret love, but called it marriage. She is making assumptions, as I say, it's a, an age-old sad pattern, making assumptions that will not be borne out in practice, and that will be thrown back in her face later, as we'll see in a few moments. She assumes something by this, and that's her big mistake. If she thought she was going to keep this secret, although she seems to be, again, one of those people so wrapped up in her love that she's oblivious to the effect on the outer world, or even that it has an effect on the outer world. If she thought she was going to keep the affair secret, she doesn't know much about how people work. Affairs never get kept secret in the long run. Partially, yes, for a while, yes, but eventually it will out. Somebody who knows will tell somebody else who who will tell somebody else, and eventually it's all over the map. In a sense, our age did not invent social media. It only mounted it electronically on the internet. What we call social media always existed, and it took the form of gossip and rumor. This is a whole theme in literature, and some critics have actually explored it as a running theme. Here, Virgil personifies rumor, capital R, rumor personified, running all the way through town, whispering what was done and what's going on and so forth and so on. The rumor reaches Iarbas, the desert chieftain out there, and he is, of course, furious that he has been supplanted by this upstart from Troy. And with spitting rage, he makes a speech with some significant imagery, imagery that likens Aeneas 
to Paris in the Trojan War. Paris, who came and took Helen away from her husband, Menelaus, took her back to Troy, and therefore caused a 10-year war in which hundreds of people died on both sides. And Iarbus refers to Aeneas as Paris. Look, another one of those decadent, effete Trojans, interested only in sex, comes from across the water and, and steals a woman away from the rightful man. He speaks of Aeneas as Sir Paris with his men, half-men, his chin, chin and perfumed hair tied up in, in a Maonian bonnet, taking possession. And I doubt that that is an accurate description of Aeneas. That's just the impotent rage of Iarbus. But the irony of applying that to Mr. Repressed again, Mr. Duty Bound, although Aeneas is here indulging in his desires and impulses, yes, including sexual ones, they are lovers. Therefore, for a moment, he is fulfilling that role, not that Iarbus has a legitimate claim, but nevertheless, the real claim is the claim of Aeneas's destiny, which he is flaunting, flouting, uh, right at the moment as well. And Jupiter is aware of that, and immediately after that speech, sends down the messenger god, Mercury, for the first of two visits to Aeneas to basically boot him into action and basically boot him out of here and on with his search for his destiny. And Mercury comes down, lands in Carthage, and the first thing he sees is significant and makes the point. Alighting tiptoe, there he found Aeneas laying the foundations for new towers and homes. Dido has lapsed in her responsibilities and is mooning around the palace, just being in love with being in love, as we used to say when we were young about some people. But Aeneas has taken over her responsibilities and is making sure that the walls continue to be built. And Mercury lights into him, not just with a message from the gods, from Jupiter, but with a whole campaign of manipulation, highly sexist, but deliberately sexist, making remarks that are designed to sting Aeneas's manhood is it for you to lay the stones for Carthage's high walls, tame husband that you are, and build their city? Again, as I say, misogynist remarks, but not just an expression of patriarchy, but a way of stinging Aeneas into action with wounded male pride, he hopes. 
And if that's not good enough, if you don't have your own masculine pride, if you will not strive for your own honor, Mercury says, think of Ascanius. Your destiny is not just a personal destiny. You owe this to your son. All the guy things to basically give Aeneas a kick in the ass and get him moving. But it leads to a mess. Aeneas does begin starting to stock his ships and make preparations for leaving. And you can't keep that totally invisible. Rumor sees that and takes the message back to Dido that your guy is packing to leave. She goes ballistic and goes and seeks him out and corners him and they have this awful confrontation, this totally awful relationship confrontation in which Aeneas, maybe a great war hero, maybe a great leader, maybe a man of historical destiny, maybe a good man trying to do the right thing, but he probably needed a male friend at his side at this moment to explain certain things to him before he put his foot repeatedly in his mouth, but he doesn't have that. And he responds to Dido's accusations and wounded anger with just about every wrong remark he could possibly make. He says exactly the things that would make it worse starting with, oh, do not think I meant to be deceitful and slip away, which is basically a lie. He has been avoiding her and doing the guy thing instead of coming to talk about the problem. We're just going to up and leave and, you know, maybe leave a note behind. Then he adds on, I never held the torches of a bridegroom, never entered upon the pact of marriage. And we've just seen Dido is assuming that those romantic lightning bolts in the cave episode amounted to a marriage. Aeneas knows better. He ought to have known better. Whatever morality says, just tact, <laughs> would say you don't throw this in the woman's face. It's not like we were married or something, honey. Yeah, really great. Then he makes it even worse. According to my wishes, first of all, I would look, go back to Troy and rebuild Troy. There is my love, there is my country, not with you who have taken me in when I and my people were desperate and given us this warm welcome. It's as if he's, Virgil is doing everything he can to make his hero look bad, the complexity of the Aeneid, which is not as much of a crowd pleaser as Homer has always been, but the fascinating under-the-surface complexity of the Aeneid gives it its own draw, at least to some people. He ends by saying, I sail for Italy not of my own free will, which on the surface is exactly what he should be saying. I'm sorry, honey, but a man's got to do what a man's got to do. It should come off like the old Western heroes in 
American film and television, what it really comes off as, at least to some readers, is male abdication, create an emotional mess, and then walk away from it, refusing to take any responsibility for it. And this is an absolute explosion, and the effect it produces on Dido, who, as I say, is never one for impulse control, is actual madness. She goes mad. Early on, her madness is the figurative madness of romantic passion. Now it becomes real madness. There is epic machinery, ominous imagery, the altars, the holy water blackens on the altars, and the wine turns into blood and mire, and so forth. She now thought voices could be heard, voices made out her husband's words, and it is likened to madness, and it attached to it are just about all the figures in Greek literature who went mad. Pentheus, who went mad trying to resist the power of Bacchus. Orestes, who went mad when he was being pursued by the Furies. This is the madness of Dido. But all of that literal supernatural pursuit by the Furies type of imagery is really psychological in its ultimate reference. Dido is one of a pattern of people. And yes, more of them are women than not. There is certainly a sexism involved in this imagery. Nevertheless, not always, but the contrast that I've mentioned before of the duty-bound, responsible, disciplined, repressed hero against a whole pattern of other people who have no control, who follow every impulse, whatever the consequences, not only to themselves, but to other people, starting with Juno, who is a sort of supernatural narcissist, still angry from losing a beauty contest two epics back, and continuing to Dido, but in the second half of the epic, as we'll see, that same impulsive and basically narcissistically self-centered nature occurs in other people. One of them, yes, another woman, Queen Amada, but not entirely. There is also Aeneas's arch enemy in the second half, a man named Turnus, who is exactly the same way, a creature of uncontrolled impulse. Aeneas is contrasted with all of these people for better or worse. And here we see the worse. We see Dido basically go into what amounts to fatal attraction mode, the spurned woman who becomes psychotic and would be violent. She's not able to do anything to Aeneas. He runs away, and when she sees the ships leaving, 
she breaks out with all she can do, which is a curse, but the curse will come true. She shouts out a curse. You're getting away, but let all these bad things happen to you. Let you be later on the field of battle in great need. Let you die on the field of battle three years after these events take place. All of these things that amount to another curse of the Cyclops. It's a parallel with the events of the Odyssey. And when Dido is compared with the Cyclops, you know that she is sunk very, very far. She is raving in her madness. Mercury comes down a second time, this time in a dream of Aeneas, and says, your girlfriend has gone bonkers. You'd better get the hell out of here. It's, now it's getting dangerous. And adds one more male pride kind of sexist prod. Ha, break the spell. Woman's a thing for, forever fitful and forever changing. And so he leaves. Dido commits suicide. But Dido's suicide is of a piece with the rest of Dido. She is not going to go in the closet and quietly slit her wrists. No, we speak of drama queens. Well, Dido, to commit suicide, causes an entire stage to be built in the town square, a platform, and she causes them to put the bed on which she and Aeneas have been lovers on that platform. She gets onto that platform, into that bed, and stabs herself to death in the abdomen with Aeneas's sword, his Freudian male phallic-shaped object, in a gesture which, you know, who needs Freud? One last, you know, take that, you faithless lover. Drama queen, my suicide has to be attended by the entire town. I'm going to make it totally theatrical. But she botches it and lingers in terrible pain in a horrible scene, half dead, half alive, until finally Juno has to send Iris, the other messenger deity, down to put her out of her misery. Aeneas, we are supposed to approve of Aeneas departing out of duty. And when we look at how out of control Dido is, we say, yeah, that follow your impulse stuff, I guess it's basically, it leads to a bad end, doesn't it? And yet, when we look at the future career of Aeneas, who gets nothing out of life and then dies early, it seems like an impasse. Freud, another person intensely influenced by Virgil. Freud, at the end of his life, wrote a book called Civilization and Its Discontents, in which he elaborated a pattern of all civilizations. The pattern historically of such civilizations is that they have to take psychic energy or libido and divert it from people's desires into building the civilization. 
but the civilization is then built on repression, and that can only last so long, and then the civilization declines and falls. That happened to Rome, and Freud clearly felt on the eve of World War II that it was happening to Western civilizations. The historian Spengler said something very similar from a historian's point of view in The Decline of the West. The Aeneid, I would say, is a battle between that tragic, pessimistic, cyclical view, both of individual life and of history, of a rise and a fall. You have to repress desire, and yet you pay this terrible, tragic price. You rise, and then you fall from what Freud called the return of the repressed. Or the more hopeful vision that there could be a historical linear progress away from tragedy. Some people see the Aeneid as only arguing for that optimistic progressive view, but to me, clearly the greatness of the Aeneid is that it has both patterns at once inside it, not outside. And it leaves us wrestling with that conflict, and that conflict is one of civilization, but it's also one of our own lives. We will take up again from the end of book four next time. Mm -hmm.